Today's scripture reading will be Song of Solomon, chapter 4. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Senir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. The word of the Lord. Good morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, I'm Ruth Seidel. I'm the associate pastor here at North, and we are in the midst of a series in the Song of Solomon called SOS, Help Me Love. Uh, it's been mentioned that Song of Solomon is at the very center of our Bibles, and I'd love to have you open it and look at chapter 4 along with me or turn on your devices. Um, this chapter is at the very center of the Song of Solomon. So we have been talking about the longing for love, the anticipation of intimacy and love, but chapter 4 is about the consummation of love. I mentioned in the opening, or it was supposed to be mentioned, that this is R-rated. <laughs> this is probably the most explicit uh, sexual passage in the Bible. And if you're a poetry re reader at all and understand metaphor, I, you were probably blushing along with me in the back. Um, I am not Dr. Ruth. It's not the most comfortable topic for me even now. When we did sex education in the 60s in Canada, it was boys in one room and girls in another. So being in a mixed crowd talking about this, I think, is a little awkward for all of us. Why are we talking about Song of Solomon? 
I want to just remind us that there are three spheres in which we have been talking about Song of Solomon applying to us as Christian people. The first sphere is simply, what does it teach us about intimacy, about the love and intimacy that all of us, single or married, are looking for? The second sphere is, what does it have to say about Christian marriage and intimacy and sex? And the third sphere is, what does it reveal about our intimate life with God? And this week, we might spend a little bit more time in that second sphere because it is literally an ode to the pleasure and joy of physical love for couples who have chosen to be in an exclusive, private, committed covenant relationship. We're going to talk about passion today. So fasten your seatbelts. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your great love for us. Thank you for this community in which we can talk about all of Scripture. Thank you that you put this at the heart of your Scripture, showing us your love for us. May we have eyes to hear and ears to hear your spirit today. In Christ's name, amen. In 1975, I fell in love. I lived in Los Angeles. And uh, I was going to school for a year. And for that year, I had known this guy named David, but it was just at the end of the year that we started dating. And really just a couple of months. And then I went home to Calgary. And I was a waitress making the great money. I think it was $1.75 an hour plus tips. And some of that money every month was being spent on what was called a long-distance phone call. Because at that time, you talked in a phone that was attached to a wall. And so, you know, you also had to find privacy to do this. And long-distance charges were cheaper after 11 o'clock at night. So once a week on Saturdays, we got to talk to each other, California to Calgary. And that cost me $50 for an hour on the phone. (laughs) So one of the first things I want you to know about passion is that passion has a willingness to pay a price. During that summer, some friends of ours were getting married in California, in Northern California, and I thought, I knew David was coming. I thought, this will be great. I'll surprise him. We hadn't seen each other for a couple of months. And I saved up my dollars. I took time off. I flew to California. My friends picked me up. They were in on the secret, dressed carefully, of course, for the wedding, showed up at the wedding, and surprise. David wasn't there. (laughs) David didn't come. Last minute, decided to work on some things at school and uh, did not come to the wedding. And I was crushed, absolutely crushed. And I was also broke, quite frankly. I have been blowing a lot of money on this relationship for a waitress. And um, my friends passed the hat, got me the money to fly from San Francisco to Los Angeles. I flew to Los Angeles. I walked up the driveway and he was there. (laughs) Interestingly, someone had asked him to take their niece out on a date that weekend, and he said, you know, I'm in a relationship. Turned out to be a really important weekend for him to know that. (laughs) As I walked up the driveway, and I think we had all of one day together. Passion is energy. It's something that uh, is really a powerful force in our lives, not just sexual energy. Passion actually comes from a word that has the idea of suffering love, if you think of the passion of Christ. Passion is what fuels Olympic 
runners to get up and to spend all day running. It's what fuels writers and artists and parents and lovers. It, it fueled us yesterday as grandparents to spend time, a lot of time, with a two-and-a-half-year-old. And it gets, uh, it, you really feel your age, but it's passion that gets us there. Uh, I can't imagine the kind of passion that as a 19-year-old, in fact, my husband said, you should say something about how things change over the years. And I can't imagine flying 16 hours to spend less than a day with my beloved. But we were all intended for passion to be a fuel in our life, in our marriages, and in our relationship with God. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, the first part of it, is, is a kind of poetry, it's an Arabic poetry that's called a wasf, W-A-S-F. And it's a love poetry that was used, especially during wedding ceremonies, apparently even up till the 19th century, where they extol the physical beauty of the bride and groom. In Song of Solomon, chapter 4 is the wasp about the bride's beauty, and next week in chapter 5, we'll read the wasp about the admiration of the body of the groom. The groom here works his way down from his beloved's eyes to her hair, to her mouth, lips, teeth, neck, and breasts, and he concludes in verse 7, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. The eyes of love see beauty. They see beauty in the beloved, and we know that this bride in Song of Solomon doesn't really meet the cultural standards of beauty for her day, and the groom, we'll find out next week, might be no prize either, as her friends say to her, what's so great about your lover? <laughs> it's not obvious to them. Others don't always see the beauty that lovers see. You could almost say that his love creates her beauty, and her love creates his beauty. I have an aunt and uncle who are in their 80s now, but I remember as a teenager seeing a Valentine's Day card that my uncle wrote my aunt, and I was a nosy teenager, and I read it, and I was a little shocked that this 40-year-old something, over 40-year-old people felt this way about each other. Uh, and they are now in their 80s and have that kind of sweetness, that kind of idealization, not, I'm not talking um, denial of reality, but that sweetness has permeated their 65-plus years in the way that they choose to see each other, the eyes with which, with, with, with which they choose, where they choose to focus. And I hope you know some older couples like that. This man is delighted in the beauty of his chosen one. Excluding all others, he only has eyes for her. And God describes his love for his beloved people, his bride, in many of the same kinds of terms. In Jeremiah 2, he writes, I, re <clears throat> I remember your youthful loyalty, our love as newlyweds. You stayed with me through the wilderness years, stuck with me through the hard places. Israel was God's holy choice, the pick of the crop. And then through the, through the words of Ezekiel, he writes, When I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. 
I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I adorned you with jewelry. Your food was honey, olive oil, the finest flour. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen, and your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. Lavish words of love that Jesus, of course, continues in that vein, um, coming and speaking words of love to us, and the the high value and beauty in each person of God's creation including you and I. All of us need to be seen through the eyes of love. Married or not, sphere one, are you and I taking time to see one another, especially in the body of Christ, through the eyes of love? Are we knowing each other, affirming each other? Are you putting yourself into community with a willingness to be seen, Part of this is on us, our willingness to be seen and allow people to affirm us. Then in that second sphere, sometimes as married couples, we have to hit refresh to again choose to focus on what was beautiful. What was, what was it that drew us to the one we chose? Because beauty is what inspires passion. I don't know about you, but it's a lot safer for me to stay in my head, to read books and go to seminars and analyze my marriage to death than it is to live in the affection of the moment, to live in the presence of the beauty of our relationship and enjoy that together. And then in sphere three, when have you seen the reflected love of God, of your belovedness in the eyes of Jesus. It takes time to do that. When have you sat in his presence and seen how beautiful you are to him or made space for God's beauty and allowed your passion or your lack of passion to be addressed in your relationship with God? Passion is always at low ebb when we expect to meet criticism or rejection As Anthony Campbell says, if we continue to picture God as a small-minded bookkeeper, a niggling customs officer rifling through our moral suitcase, as a policeman with a club who's going to bat us over the head every time we stumble and fall, or a whimsical, capricious, and cantankerous thief who delights in raining on our parade and stealing our joy, we flatly deny what John writes in his first letter, God is love. In human beings, love is just a quality, a highly prized virtue. In God, love is his identity. If we continue to view ourselves as moral lepers and spiritual failures, if our lives are shadowed by low self-esteem, shame, remorse, unhealthy guilt, and self-hatred, we reject the teaching of Jesus. We are all invited to be seen and known through the eyes of love that leads us to an invitation to intimate surrender. 
In our passage, there's a mutual invitation. In verse 8, we read the groom's invitation to the bride. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon. And it sounds like it's a dangerous place that she is. There's lions and leopards. And her invitation comes at the very end of our passage in verse 16. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. It's really a radical idea. It was a radical idea at the time of Song of Solomon, and I think it's still a radical idea in our world today that both a man and a woman are free to choose whom they love and whom they give themselves to. The idea of mutuality is all through the scriptures. From Genesis 1, both man and woman woman are created in the image of God, and both are given responsibility over the earth and called to fill it. In Ephesians 5, both spouses are given roles and also told to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And Paul's radical declaration to the Galatians, all of you, sons and daughters, clothed in Christ, where there is no distinction between male and female, Greek or Jew, slave or free, all of you are one in Christ. The idea here is that men and women freely enter into the relationship of covenant love, and it lines up with the rest of scriptures, right? Well, some of you are probably pretty biblically literate. I know you are because of the questions I sometimes get. And another passage came to mind, which is 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul says, wives have authority over their husbands' bodies, and husbands have authority over wives' bodies. Well, doesn't that contradict this idea that we're talking about mutual invitation? And I bring up that passage because it's a passage that has been uh, used and twisted in order to justify things as awful as force, coercion, and even sexual violence in marriage. It's why we really need to understand, and that's why when we're teaching scripture, we take scriptures from other parts of the Bible because we need to understand the whole counsel of God. And in that passage, Paul is responding to the thought in Corinth at the time. Some people thought since Jesus was celibate, it must be more spiritual to be celibate. And so people, married people, couples, were withdrawing from the intimacies of marriage, and Paul instructs them not to withdraw from sex, that it is love's privilege on both sides. Both husbands and wives are to serve and to yield so that mutuality happens even to the extent of the bedroom. We were intended for passion, and sex is a gift that nourishes marriages. It's like a regular recommitment ceremony saying, I choose you. Timothy Keller writes, sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. Sometimes when we're talking about sex, there's an idea that God's boundaries are really unrealistic restrictions. I think Song of Solomon gives us the opportunity to say, no, what God wants 
is that you not settle for some bland imitation of the great gift he intended sex to be. Friends with benefits is so much less than God's best. It's saying, I'm willing to be vulnerable with my body, but not with my social life or my finances or my spiritual life or my emotions. I love you enough to get naked physically, but not naked emotionally. I'm withholding other parts of my life from intimacy. Pornography is another distortion that elevates sensation without relationships. And porn, we now know, literally rewires the brains of those who use it. It creates new neural pathways that change how uh, people who use it see and understand the world. It's so true that when we seek pleasure disconnected from our whole selves, gradually we need more and more stimulation, and the pleasure finally entirely eludes us. C.S. Lewis wrote that sex outside of marriage is like eating food and spitting it out. Probably he didn't know about bulimia, which is kind of what he's describing there. Food is to be enjoyed. It is the tastes and smells and sensuality of eating is a gift to us, and it is meant to nourish us. Likewise with our sexual appetites. And what about our passion for God? He is such a picture of a good lover, isn't he? In his strong and benevolent love, he never exerts power. He never demands his rights. He doesn't demand relationship, but he is continually inviting, inviting us in a self-giving love. And God desires full and free partners who are passionately engaged with him. The Psalms are kind of like love letters. They're a wealth of examples of spiritually intimate conversation with God. The Psalms, some of them are love letters. Some of them are arguments. Some of them are cries of pain. And some of them are like spiritual pillow talk. Psalm 27, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. My soul clings to you. As we consider the invitation to intimacy, to surrender to passion, in sphere one, all of us have to consider who are we inviting into the vulnerability of sharing our whole selves with? Who's inviting you? Mutuality is just as important in friendships and in family relationships as it is in marriage. And in sphere two, in marriage, love certainly unveils all of us. It's there that we see our insecurities, our inadequacies, our failures. And as surely as anything is true, all of the problems of a marriage show up in the marriage bed. 
do you know and value yourself as much as the bride in this case? She called it my garden in verse 16, and then she could say it is his garden. In other words, she had to own her own value and beauty in order to give it to him. Have you done that so that you can truly be a partner? And are you inviting your spouse into full partnership through shared goals and interests? Are you vulnerable spiritually, financially, emotionally, and sexually? And then finally, in that third spiritual, uh, spiritual realm, are you a passionate partner? Are you a passionate partner of God? When was the last time you listened to his invitation? When was the last time you were vulnerable and invited God to renew your passion? The final section in chapter 4 is a passage that just drips with the delights of being united in sexual love. And I'm already thinking about uh, the 11 o'clock service when Peter and Amy won't be here and I will read it. I have to say it's been so nice to have this lovely couple reading those words of poetry to us. And I don't want us ever to take the poetry and dissect it into this means this and this means this and this means that because the point of poetry is so much bigger than dissecting it in that way. But it drips with that. If you remember last week, Anna taught us these three Hebrew words for love. First, raha, friendship, that foundational kind of love. Ahava, that ferocious covenant love. And then she told us about toad, that love that's expressed in sexual intimacy. I looked it up, and that word appears 61 times in the Old Testament, and 40 of those are in this book. Verses 8 and 9, where the, gro the groom says, You have captivated or ravished or thrilled my heart, my sister, meaning known to me, close to me, beloved friend, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. How beautiful is your love, and it's that word toad, sexual love. How much better is your love, again, the sexual love, than wine, and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. My first thought uh, reading this, especially, this is, I think, the second out of five that you've heard from a female perspective, and I think it's important to say that women have great responsibility for the hearts that they have captured. Men's hearts are breakable. What vulnerability it takes to allow a woman to capture your heart. It is literally at the risk of his life. Harvard's health website concludes statistics about men's health with this. Good marriages promote health and longevity in men, but stressful and shattered marriages have the opposite effect, especially for men. The delights of her love in Song of Solomon are described as a powerful life-giving force, a garden, a spring of living water, a fountain. And that's literally true. Love is literally a life-giving source. It's borne out in the truth of Proverbs 4.23, written by a father to a son, who tells him, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And then in chapter 5, he says, Enjoy the wife you married as a young man, lovely as an angel, beautiful as a rose, 
Don't ever quit delighting in her body. Never take her love for granted. Our current cultural image is of the happily active, sexually active single person. That's kind of the image we have of who's really having fun out there. But it is completely debunked by research. A summary in Population and Development Review writes this: Married religious people are the most sexually active, have the highest levels of emotional and physical satisfaction from their sex lives, and the more one attends church, the higher one's level of satisfaction with sex. So there. <laughs> the pleasures of intimacy are literally life-giving. And the groom describes his delight here with all of his senses, touch and taste, fragrance and sight. Are we all like thoroughly uncomfortable now? <laughs> Maybe you're sitting here today and you're single and would love to be in a relationship, or you're married and you're in a difficult season of life. And I want to encourage you that there are seasons. I've been married for 40 years, and there are frustrating seasons. Seasons of illness, or depression, or stress, or marital strife. There's exhausting seasons of sleeplessness, and overwork, and travel, and babies. And there are angry seasons of hurting each other, and physically distancing. But I wanted to read these words. It's a lovely article written by Sarah Shank, who is a、uh, seminary professor in the Midwest, and it was a tribute to her husband of 40 years. She says, "It's one of my husband's favorite lines: 'With my body, I thee worship.'" It may seem unseemly to mention it here in a public blog post by an institutional president, but the line is taken directly from a marriage liturgy of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. It boldly declares for all to hear that marriage includes bodily devotion to one's partner. This public declaration, with its poetic beauty, is held within the deep wisdom of a traditional communal recognition. That keeping fidelity with one's partner is profoundly good. That this bodily honoring of one's partner is declared within the public worship of our Creator God makes all the difference in the world. In marriage, we make love with all of who we are—body, mind, and spirit. She concludes: After 40 years of being held and holding each other through floods of tears and peeling laughter, shattering grief. And miraculous healing, humbling failure, and surprising joy. With my body, I worship and give thanks. God, the Creator of bodies, says they are indeed a part of God's good creation, and He longs for us also to be intimate, passionate partners in a committed relationship of love with Him. As I was finishing up this sermon on Friday, I unexpectedly had a couple of hours to myself alone, and、um, I decided I should take the advice I was about to give you. <laughs> so I sat on my bed, and I read through the Song of Solomon as God's words to me personally, and I underlined the words that touched me, that touched my heart. And where I felt God's affection for me, my beloved speaks and says to me, "Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. 
My beloved is mine, and I am his. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You have captured my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. You are your beloved's, and his desire is for you. I could have spent the last conclusion here giving you chapter and verse about how we're united with Christ, he's in you and you're in him, but I don't believe that a hundred sermons would have the impact of spending a half hour with your beloved, experiencing the invitation to be seen through his eyes of love, being invited to respond and surrender to his love. I would fly 16 hours to spend that half hour at Jesus' feet. And I know that some of you aren't feeling that love today. You're in a season with God of frustration or weariness or anger. And so I ditched my conclusion because I wanted to read something to you that I think is a beautiful love letter of God's words of invitation. They come from Henri Nouwen's book, Life of the Beloved, and it's kind of a compilation of scripture of words of God about you. And I want you to just close your eyes with me for five minutes if you feel comfortable. And I'm just going to read these words of love to you. I have called you by name from the very beginning. You are mine and I am yours. You are my beloved. On you my favor rests. I have molded you in the depths of the earth and knitted you together in your mother's womb. I have carved you in the palms of my hands and hidden you in the shadow of my embrace. I look at you with infinite tenderness and care, and I care for you with a care more intimate than that of a mother for her child. I have counted every hair of your head and guided you at every step. Wherever you go, I go with you. And wherever you rest, I keep watch. I will give you food that will satisfy all your hunger and drink that will quench all your thirst. I will not hide my face from you. You know me as your own, as I know you as my own. You belong to me. I am your father, mother, your brother, your sister, your lover, and your spouse. Yes, even your child. Wherever you are, I will be. Nothing, nothing, nothing will ever separate us. We are one. Amen.